Hello and welcome back to A Dental Life. I'm Zainab, your host, and today I'm joined by Nigel Mallon for part three of this series. In part one and two, Nigel spoke about his experiences as a dentist in the armed forces and how he grew Taptonville Clinic into the wildly successful practice that it is today and achieved so much in his career. In this episode, Nigel tells me about his dental volunteerism experiences in Ecuador and Rwanda. We discuss the negatives and positives of undergraduate electives and cover topics from poverty tourism to white saviour complex. If you're interested in these areas, please check out my Instagram at Dental Life for some resources that can be used to expand your knowledge, find out a bit more about this topic. Dental volunteerism, it started back, uh, um, I guess, my the big opportunity I had was when I was in the Royal Navy. And my one of my first jobs was working out in Borneo. And uh, uh, it was an unusual setup because there were a lot more older people working there. And I, I'd managed to sneak my way in on this placement, um, married a company. And uh, I was the junior bod little dentist in this uh, army camp. And the, the colonel in charge took a bit of a shining to me. And he was a, an ex-SAS um, officer. And he, back in 1963, had been dropped into the jungle and used to do reconnaissance uh, during the communist uprising. And so now he was retired and he'd got this job back in Brunei. He had the opportunity, because he was in charge, he could say, can I have a helicopter for the day? And uh, he would go off into the interior and uh, would find these old longhouses where the tribes people used to live in local villages and um, go and catch up with his old mates. And he brought me along. And uh, he introduced me this idea of hearts and minds where you could bring, um, you know, you basically go in and serve the community. Uh, the word pro bono means um, pro bono publicus is means the giving of services to the public where they can't actually get it it's it's aimed at professionals who can do something for the greater good of other people which you can't do that's where the word latin that's what the latin means and um it was just amazing what an opportunity i mean and this is back in the late 80s so i just had a bag of forceps and chlorhexidine and some local and um took teeth out and I guess that was my first idea of doing peripatetic dentistry you know mobile dentistry into unusual places I then subsequently um, ended up being sent to the Gulf War back in uh, 91 and so I was with a proper mobile unit I had all my dental equipment in two big boxes and so I could go from ship to ship doing clinical work and I guess that gave me a real confidence to think that you can go any place and anywhere. And there's also this side, you know, I realized that you know, having seen what it did to local villages and what it did to a workforce, um, that it really inspired me as to what you could do. And I'd seen other mates and things do stuff with healthcare, but it was all like prevention and um, it's quite hard for doctors. But the great thing about dentists, you can go in and sort a problem there and then and get it fixed. So, um, and a mate of mine had been on a hospital ship, uh, a YWAM on Youth with a Mission, and uh, the Doulos as well, which is OM, they got they had dentists at sea. So I, I was very fortunate to have a couple of inspirational people in my life, really. Um, and so that was in the back burner, interested, yeah, thought I could do that, da-da-da-da. 
got you know got into dentistry expanded the business and did all sorts of things as you heard last time and then i got this opportunity to go to the states i nearly thought i was going to give dentistry up but then came back into it and um i was in arizona at that time so a british friend living in south carolina told me in our by phone in arizona to go to ecuador so i went <laughs> i'm very thankful i've got a wonderful wife who lets me do these things <laughs> and the kids and um they take all these students out of South Carolina dental school down to Ecuador and uh, set up in a big gymnasium, about 40, 50 of them at that stage. And they also have physiotherapists, ophthalmologists and other people alongside. And we go into the schools and we did checkups and did oral health and um, do fluoride treatment with them. But then we'd run a full clinic with um, uh, we'd buy compressors locally and then we'd bring in all the portable dental equipment and we could do ARTs, GICs. In fact, now I've managed to fix them up with a Nomad X-ray unit and uh, they're doing root treatments, which is incredible, really. Um, so that was like 12 years ago, I guess. And I've probably been going back there for the past, yeah, 10 years. I mean, I've, I've been about seven, eight times, I suppose, over yeah. the years. And managed to take BDS students. So I used to take a couple of you know you guys on electives as well back in the day. Uh, and it's still there and it's still open if people are interested. Uh, well, it's that's all on hold at the moment. Of course, the Americans have a very different view on COVID. So um, I have mates in America who have not missed a beat and still treat doing dentistry exactly as we were last year. Where the idea of you know, PPE, F FFP3 masks and fallow time is just not on the horizon. Yeah, not reached across the camp. <laughs> well, the disease has, but their yeah. political and sort of uh, healthcare sort of outlook on it all is very different. So. Yeah. Mm. But um, so, Dr. And so I met this amazing couple, um, Dr. Bill Sasser, at 55, a periodontologist, had this wake up call. He was in church on a Sunday and this guy said, what are you doing with your life? And he thought, not much. So he went on his first volunteer trip. Now, if you go to the American uh, website, ADA, you know, like the BDA, the American Dental Association website, there's a plethora of different agencies. America have a, have a big raft of people doing trips and things all around. And they go from the sublime to the ridiculous. You can go to... Uh, on rum drinking dental trips into the West Indies, or you can go like me into East African prisons. <laughs> um, and there's all sorts of stuff. Um, so I'd never come across this before. And I had a pretty dim view, I think, of overseas work like that. I thought it was a bit hit and run and of no real effect. And I think we in the UK have become quite sensitized to this. And I mean, this I started this 15 years ago and um, uh, we, I think, have been ahead of many parts of the other world, have been responsible in what we're doing. And things like the Oxfam crisis and all sorts of other things have uh, made us much more mindful of what are we doing, how are we in the West actually behaving towards other parts of the world. Even to call them, you know, third world makes, you know, it makes out that you're second or first and they're third, you know, uh, or developing countries. Um, you know, it, it, we... we and actually, I'm becoming much more sensitive now. I don't talk about, I try not to talk about Africa. I try to talk about East Africa because Egypt 
and Cape Town or Africa. Yeah. But you wouldn't talk about them in the same terms, would you? So to be more you know, specific about community, what's going on. So in dental school, we have the option of doing our elective and most people choose to do them abroad, but we don't get training on how to do them effectively or like once you've gone abroad and um, how to be sensitive to that culture or appreciate that culture. Well, I, I think that would be one of the, um, it's really difficult because I, you, you are very much left on your own to go and find somewhere. Yeah. And I remember, well, there used to be adverts in the BDJ. My wife went to Tamil Nadu in the south of India, based on an advert from a friend um, in a church magazine somewhere. And they just got on the train, went to Mumbai, took the train down to the south of India, wore saris and did dentistry for two weeks and then came back, well, for a month and then came back. Yeah. Completely unsupported, you know, in the middle of nowhere with this little, this old retiree lady with a, and they still had a treadle uh, you know so somebody had to work the bicycle whilst the other person did the actual drilling <laughs> um but you're i, I think that's the, um there's a blah, 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 resources a, there's a website called thet um and t-h-e-t and they do overseas missionary uh, overseas relief work and they've got a, a set of eight, nine principles, which really are very, very helpful. And if anyone's doing your write-up, your elective, go to thet.com and uh, you've got yourself an eight-point uh, essay straight off. Because you can go through each one of those and actually um, you know, that, that, that would give you sort of the, uh, some guidelines for it. So, I mean, and, and therein, one of the things is that are you going out with an agency which has been strategic? You know, is there actually a joined up plan from beginning to end or is this just a one off event? Um, is it harmonised with local talent and local resources? And actually are, um, and is it effective and sustainable? Those are important things. But will they prepare you to be global, to be a local solution from a global resource? So will they actually equip you so that you can be effective in your environment? I think very, very important. And sometimes people just sign folk up because they've bought the airline ticket and they're enthusiastic. Um, and the danger is our motivation can be voyeurism. It can be what they called uh, tourism poverty, a poverty yeah, tourism. Voluntourism. Voluntourism. <laughs> um, you know, a, a sense of adventure, boredom, yeah. uh, all these things. I think... You can get very on your high and mighty horse about a lot of those sort of things. And certainly as a young adult, I was adventuring. Certainly as a more mature dentist, I was um, inquisitive and voyeuristic. Then as a photojournalist, it became obsessional. I was more you know, into getting my pictures of the kids having had the tooth out than I was actually taking the tooth out. Yeah. I found myself suddenly realizing I was more concerned about that than I was other things. And I had to stop myself and thought, why am I doing this? Why am I, what, what am I going on? But I think some, you've got to start somewhere. It's very easy to throw stones. And everybody loves the idea of going on these trips and everybody, you know, say, oh, Nigel, I must come away with you next time. That'd be really good. Oh, tell me all about Ecuador. Let's do it. Da, da, da. And then when it comes to it, there's no interest. And they, 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 they don't want to get out of their comfort zone or it's just yes. too much of a jump or there's too much fear, or they just haven't scheduled it to think it's important. 
So I, in some ways, rather work with people who I could then maybe, I'd love taking these people on trips with me and then talking about these things and restructuring it. And I'd come, and that's another thing. Um, one of the principles is honest uh, reflection. Yeah. And so at the end of it, you know, was this effective? And you can say, no, do you know what? I went to the Cameroon and I worked in a hospital there and they had an old therapist program. Somebody had been out there and trained up about 50 therapists and gone and lived there for 30 years. And they were out there working and they used to charge as much for taking a tooth out as actually extirpating a tooth. So they would literally extirpate and then they would redress it and stick another GP, a single point GP in it and a bit of whatever they had um, going on. And I thought this is terrible. You can't say you're selling root treatment through this program and everything. But then I realized that we're just keeping teeth on open drainage or actually you know, just redressing them over again. And then I come back to the UK and I work on the emergency clinics here in Yorkshire. And uh, I see hundreds of patients who are going through the same pattern. You know, they haven't got their own dentist. They just phone, you know, 111 and come through and have the tooth redressed. We've all seen them on A&E, haven't we? Yeah. On uh, A&C. And so, um, actually, they maintain the tooth. And the tooth, if it decoronates, you've still got roots. It's great. You know, it's still functional. So, that, therein, that's over time, you realise that actually, you know, you've got to listen to what the people are doing and what are the resources they actually need. And some of the work which we did, I think, like in Ecuador, we take out this very, you know, we're doing root treatments proper with lateral condensation, or we're doing all sorts of treatments under rubber dam. And, um, you know, are we maybe imposing on them a, uh, a much, uh, a, a very Western view of what healthcare should look like? Yeah. And a mini version of that is like, I get American dentists slagging off the NHS because they think everything should be done in a perfect way with, with all the money and all the resources. But we know full well that the NHS Health Service provides a brilliant care program which is adequate for across the nation. You know, we all know things could be done better, but we don't have the resources and time to do it. And we all know things could be done worse, don't we? So we've got to make a moral decision based and a professional decision and that really affects our volunteerism because taking running a program where you take students out overseas to do extraction clinics so that they can learn how to take teeth out, uh, basically practicing on you know, people in, in, in other countries is a bit sketchy, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. My and taking out-of-date drugs or <laughs> Clinics dumping all their out-of-date articane and stuff on you and, and uh, things. So, oh, you can, Nigel, you can use this on your next trip. Yeah. Well, we've had You're a providing life. different levels of care to the different groups just because of their, like, poverty or where they're from or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. So, now, interestingly, though, Americans think that we're providing that, but through the NHS. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we on the NHS are thinking differently when we go to Djibouti or go to somewhere else. And rightly so, you know, one of my trips and uh, they, they impounded all our equipment and they took one of the boxes and didn't give it back to us because they found some out-of-date drugs in it. And, uh, you know, all right, it was saline solution and local, I mean, which is just daft, but, you know, it, 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 we wouldn't do that here, would we? Yeah. 
Yeah. So I, I went to Ecuador and Bill came up to me afterwards and um, he said, Nigel, this is all a bit soft. It's a bit easy. You know, we had good accommodation and everything. You're closer. Let's go to Africa. So let's go to Burundi. Uh, we went to Rwanda. We had a, con a contact with um, the prisons out there. And so we dropped into um, Rwanda where there's something like 90,000 people locked up in prisons. Um, from the genocide and I went into one prison which was it was designed for about six eight hundred people and it literally had thousands of people in it and they had one visit a week for 10 minutes where the family would give them food for the week because they only had one meal a day and uh, no health care at all well they had no they, they could be taken to the local hospital but the guys weren't taking teeth out very well at all so they were coming across a lot of decoronations and stuff and yeah, people just weren't getting access to it so yes. that was a very sobering experience and um it, I'm, there's one there's this one guy called Ma uh, mafia and um i'm in the clinic and i'm just working away and uh i'm working with this nurse who's translating and this guy comes in and he points to the top and he's got a bombed out premolar it's numbed them up take it away all done and I remember his name because, you know, who's, who calls that some mafia? It's really strange. Anyway, um, and then about half an hour later, there's all this noise going off at the nurse's station and they're all, they're singing and they're dancing and they're clapping their hands and jumping up and down. And I go, and I wander down, I go, what's going on? And they said, oh, doctor, doctor, doctor Nigel, well, um, you took mafia's tooth out. I said, yeah, primo, top. They said, oh, and they had literally, because the guy, poor guy had, he had, um, um, special needs he, he didn't communicate very well and he could get quite violent and three times they tried to take him to the hospital and either he wouldn't go or the hospital refused to take this tooth out and i had just done what i did yeah. you know to take the tooth out and for, for some reason he just sat good as gold for me and took it out which you know we shouldn't lose the wonder of that that happens in our surgery every monday morning you know it does it's just that maybe uh, it'd be nice to see our patients dancing around the waiting rooms like they do in East Africa, but yeah. <laughs> maybe they do. I don't know. <laughs> um, but it is it, it's interesting because we got to the airport at Rwanda in Kigali and it's awash with humanitarian aid and T-shirts and high schoolers from America coming out to do school projects and things. And, you know, I remember we were... Um, sharing accommodation and there were like 25 kids from a, a place in Oklahoma and they all had kit bags in the schools and everything and the amount of energy and everything going into this so um, it's a bit like Ecuador last trip I went on we had 85 people on it I mean that's like nearly quarter of a million dollars worth of airfare yeah the money yeah. that goes into traveling so for example electives I know people that spend up like upwards of four grand on their electives um so getting over there you know getting all the equipment and then traveling afterwards yeah yeah this money would be better used if you so things like bridge to aid donating to them i yeah i i think uh that's part of your honest reflection sometimes i think we can take a lot of these principles the FET principles and we're using a very western mindset on a very different part of the world yeah and we've got to meet halfway and actually we can let some of these values fold back into us because 
actually I know there's folk which I've taken on trips who had, had a terrible time or um, actually one girl I know she just did, didn't agree with it at all at all and you know understandably some of the things which happened and stuff were but that hasn't stopped her having a much richer understanding of life and the world and her responsibility. There's a, a great website called richlist.com and you can stick in your salary. And as an associate, you'll come out in the 0.01% richest people on the planet, which is just incredible really, isn't it? As soon as I saw that, I thought, well, what about the other 99.9% .9 of the world? What's my responsibility? So sometimes um, an elective, which you spend four grand on, two weeks away on the other side of the world, can enrich your life and change your attitude to the rest of the world, which will benefit you for the rest of your career. So that would be my argument for keeping the electives. Yeah. Because um, you guys, uh, young adults, um, have a much better global um, feel for the world you know, than we do. Um, and for that end to connect with it and realize that you can do these things and realize how portable you are, um, go for it. And uh, I think, yes, you can overpay and you can go too far and you possibly can go, you know, you know to places which aren't as efficient. But, <laughs> do you know, you've got to make a few mistakes in your life to find out what you should be doing, really. If you're peddling it as an industry and making money out of young adults going off, I might have issues with you. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I think this whole white saviour complex thing is, is really good that that's in our language now to what's going yeah, on. Yeah, that we're more aware of it. Um, there's another good book and it's called <laughs> When Helping Hurts. Yeah. And uh, it talks about basically this equation when we see poverty in terms of material things, um, you don't have something, but I can get it for you. I have this thing that you now want. I will bring you this thing and you, know, you can say thank you very much for what I brought for you. And it becomes a dependency. The people become dependent on you yeah. and you become godlike in your um, provision of this. And it doesn't allow for development. So we've got to, we, when you see poverty in terms of opportunity and relationship, it changes the whole map. Because actually, you find communities in rural Africa uh, with much greater wealth than what we have here in Yorkshire. They have a much stronger sense of community and identity. And you forget that. Or you might not realise that these countries have their own healthcare systems and programmes and like you need to work within the systems that are already there. Absolutely. When I was, uh, so when Colonel Ling took me out into the jungle and uh, then I went off on my own to another little place because I've got into this now. I stayed there a couple of days and then this little Chinese lad came up with this bag of oranges and it turned out he was the local dentist. He'd done this like apprenticeship and uh, I went up to his clinic and literally just took teeth out and made dentures. That's all he did. And I probably wiped out three months worth of work for him because I had no idea what the local services were. And I should have worked alongside him. Yeah. I should have gone into his clinic and provided stuff for him and helped him out. Um, and you're absolutely right. And um, when we go to Ecuador, 
we set up a clinic, but then we liaise with each school we go into, their dentist comes to, and we invite the dentist to come in and watch our Western treatments going. So this one, Helping Hearts book, um, it talks about relief, it talks about uh, development and rehabilitation. And so relief work is where there is nobody. And so something like going into Burundi, because there's nobody there, and people are dying of toothache still, yeah. I think you can justify going in and doing that sort of work. And so your criteria might slip as to what's acceptable and what's unacceptable because of the greater good. Because first and foremost, do no harm. You know, where there's a country where there's stuff going on already, uh, like in Ecuador, you can go alongside them and help develop it and enhance what's going on. In fact, rehabilitate it probably because it needs to get help and to access care alongside the private group. But then you get things like Bridge to Aid, which are developing work. And so what they have done is identified, and, and that's where I, I landed really, having doing this extreme stuff. I got a phone call and put in touch with this guy called Ian Wilson. He was out in Tanzania when I first spoke to him. He's come back now. And he told me about the project which Bridge to Aid do. And he had been out in the bush taking teeth out and it was just burning him out. He tried to then set up a clinic and that financially didn't work. But then he identified these health workers who could be trained up and they, they, they can, they've done communication, they've done medical histories, they can prescribe medicines, they do injections for vaccines, they do, um, uh, Obs and gyne, they've straightened out broken legs and everything. Yeah. So it's very easy to take all those skills and enhance them. Yeah. Um, and that was the, that's what you do. You start and you do more and more modules as a staff nurse, as a regional health worker, you, and then you, then you get up to doctor level. Um, that's the way you do it. You pass your exams. It's really funny. We pass our exams, then become a doctor. Whereas out there, again, different culture, yeah. you work your way up prove competency and then they call you a doctor <laughs> yeah. over summer i did um this online community health worker program course so i really appreciated how important it is to yeah like empower the local people and get them to take care of their community because that works better in a yeah. lot of countries which is such a thrill because what happens is 11 of us go out together um, we have four um, on an oral health team, and they're usually nurses, or they could be lab technicians, they could be all sorts of, they could just be volunteers. And then we have six dentists, and then you have a lead dentist to look after the group. Which again, in a foreign culture, it's just so good to have somebody stepping back to allow people and facilitate them to get on. When you go out leading a trip and working flat out as well, um, the culture shock, the weather, the um, stress, the emotional stress of it all, it does your head in. I mean, it really does. You get this day three syndrome when you're out there day four and you just find people in tears or shouting at each other or you know, going off in a strop. And um, you know, at this point, the extroverts have gone ballistic and are talking too much. The introverts have now sunk into their little holes. And then suddenly somebody says something they shouldn't have said and it all goes to rats. Yeah. <laughs> But then they all make up and, that, and that's the thing at the end of a 10 day trip it's so intense the experience you've had 
And that again is a benefit for taking people away on these trips because they then get this uh, intense experience, which is quite unique, which will shape and mold their lives. So I'm yeah. all positive that. But but anyway, we they, we work with six local health workers, what are called clinical officers, and you do one-on-one -on -one teaching with them. And you do that over two bunches of four days and you have a gap in the day in the middle just to suck in just so they can remember everything and they get a little lecture in their own Swahili in the morning and they've had a day or so with, um, before we started with the so, so they're there with a local dentist um, who's chosen six people he wants to be as his apprenticeships apprentices and then the UK dentist comes out and works alongside them and people say oh you can't teach somebody to take a tooth out in eight days but if you imagine you had, you know, one of your oral surgery staff stood beside you all day, every day, you know, for eight hours taking teeth up. We reckon it's the equivalent of about a year to 18 months of undergraduate training. You know, giving them out a clinical side. Because what, what, how many people do you have on clinic with you when you're done on oral surgery? Uh, like four, normally. Four. And how many teeth do you take out in an afternoon? <laughs> normally like one two three yeah yeah you've done that before breakfast <laughs> you know and you've got a full range and also they're great teeth as well because they haven't got root treatments and they haven't got big yeah. fillings in them and all stuff like that they've just got caries and big holes so uh, i mean they are flipping hard to take out because sometimes the jaws are really strong and you've got attrition and fluoride and the like but uh for the best part they're really great teeth to be taking out from an oral surgeon point of view yeah <laughs> from a humanitarian health aid point of view it's very tragic and very sad <laughs> <laughs> so i landed with them and um it's it's interesting so the ecuador trip the last time i was there i spoke to the pastor and i had not realized um because we use their big gymnasium when i had gone there over 10 years ago the church was about 300 people and we'd worked in the slums actually before coming back to the church building. And the church now is about 3,000. And one of the reasons for that, and they've got seven different sites, is because they have been committed to improving the social health care and economy of their city of Ecuador, Quito. You know, Three million people, 60% of them under the poverty line, all this sort of business and lots of single parent families. And they, they wanted to be more than a Sunday. They wanted to be in their community and helping. So when they got the chance for an American dental team to turn up, they grabbed it. And they just said, you're just part of a wider picture of what we do to serve and help our community to provide access, which they cannot get to, basically pro bono. And actually they do charge a small fee, just a dollar for any treatments, just to keep it valued in some ways. But all that money goes back into projects. It goes back to giving to the community. The money goes straight back to them. And that sort of synergy of working within a community and seeing it part of a bigger picture brings yeah. value and meaning to it and uh and it's more sustainable I would, yeah well it is it is and <clears throat> i would i mean i take it a bit further and i think i said that in the lecture uh, uh, um i'm just an ordinary person that's had extraordinary opportunities and i've just been stupid or courageous enough to take them <laughs> and uh I've ended up working backwards in some ways from overseas uh, to do, I ended up doing crisis at Christmas, you know, down in London. 
So Mary Farnell, one of our brilliant associates, she ended up running that. She was the lead clinician. And of course, when CQC all came in, we actually then became the sponsoring partner for it. It all came under my name for doing it down in London. And uh, then we started just doing stuff locally and supporting things as well. And I, I think that you, you've got to get this range of doing stuff in your own backyard, in your city, in your own yeah. country and in the continents. And the encouragement is that you do that as an individual and also in the team which you're given and working with so that your practice um, has sponsored charities. Um, and in some ways, my mission when in my workplace has been really raising levels of thankfulness and generosity. And however that pours out, that's great. You know, it, and it doesn't matter if a dental practice is not doing dental volunteerism. It's quite likely they're going to be doing, you know, stuff for breast cancer or because of the amount, you know, of, of, of um, you know, it, it, what might be personal going on to the, the clinic, you know, itself and what's going on or prostate cancer, something like that. Or it might be the local cat shelter. I don't know. I don't care. As long as they're doing something. And actually, it's good to budget these things at the beginning of the year and say, how much am I going to give overseas to the country, to the city, and just to people and mates such I know. And I've done that personally and as a business forever and a day. So I always arranged that I had, you know, three or four weeks in the year, that, you know, it got up to that, but it started with having 10 working days and a couple of grand out of the business plan put to one side so that I could go on a trip. Didn't cost me anything because it was in my business plan. I'd already put the money aside. So part of that, it seems horrendous to be paying out four grand for a flight, but, you know, and a, and a trip. Um, but if you start putting money away now and anticipate that you're going to go every three, four years, it just becomes part of your routine as a, as a dentist. And, that's, and then you can pick that up because then you'll meet somebody and they'll say, hi, Zainab, come with me to Ecuador next March. Okay, get your vaccine. Let's go. You know, we'll talk to the dean. <laughs> or you know, come with me and let's go to um, Tanzania and we'll do Bridge to Aid trip. And you can be on the whole team. And you go, uh, oh, actually, I've got a grand in my um, fund already set aside. All I need to do is, you know, come in touch with gran Granny and she'll give me the rest of it. Or something. Yeah. <laughs> So that's a strategy. So that'd be, if you want to do volunteers and think ahead, plan ahead. And like you said, it's worthwhile doing some cultural reading beforehand. Uh, it really is worthwhile. There's some good stuff out there on understanding different foreign cultures. You can read a book about it and think you're an expert. That's me. Uh, you can go to two or three countries and then you know you're an expert. And then after 15 years of doing this, I haven't got a clue. I really haven't. <laughs> And that's because I've embarrassed myself so many times and got it wrong so many times. And I'm just held in wonder as to how amazing this world is and the people which should inhabit it. And um, it's having the respect and um, servant heart to go to those people wherever they are, especially when they don't get the access. Thank you everyone who tuned in. This topic is so important because as healthcare professionals we've got the opportunity and the skills to do so much good but like Nigel says in this episode it's really important to reflect and understand your motives and always hold yourself accountable. 
Don't forget to subscribe, follow me on Instagram at A Dental Life, where I'll be posting some resources and accounts that talk a bit more about these topics, and to leave a nice review if you've been listening on Apple Podcast. Thank you.